1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you have a copy of this morning's bulletin there, you'll see some notes. You can feel free to take notes, write notes, um, or it'll just show you when we're almost done. That might help some of, some of us this morning, so feel free to use that. If you don't have one, uh, throw a hand up and I'll, I'll make sure to get you one. All right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we will finally finish this first chapter um, by moving into uh, to verse 10. Before we do that, just by way of introduction, um, so far in this study we have learned that the entire region around the city of Thessalonica has heard about the church there. In the north, in Macedonia, in the south, in Achaia, and all around they've heard that this church that Paul has started um, has received the gospel, and they've received it with joy, as we've talked about, and they've received it in much affliction. Even though it was not necessarily easy, they still received the word and have faced persecution because of it. And they responded to the word, verse 9, by casting aside their idols, turning from idols, and turning to serve the one true God. And so Paul, hearing this, has written this letter, these five chapters, these, this letter to teach them, to inspire them, and to encourage them. So that kind of sets the table for where we are this morning. One verse is our text, that's verse 10, as we conclude chapter 1 with a sermon called, Wait for His Son. Let's pick up in verse 9 and then get to verse 10. It says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Based on this verse, I'm going to give us three big questions. Three big questions to ask, to think about, to dive into that not only relate to verse 10, but actually relate to the entire letter of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So here we go. Big question number one is who? He says in verse 10, you are, you've turned from idols to God and you are waiting for his son from heaven. So who are these Christians in Thessalonica waiting for? It's clear to us, right? They're waiting for the son of God from heaven, who is Jesus. Up until this point in this chapter, uh, although Christ was mentioned back in verse 1 and verse 3, but through those middle verses, it doesn't talk about Christ, it talks about them turning to serve God, but now, very specifically, he talks about the Son of God, the Son from heaven, raised from the dead, and he gives his name, doesn't he? He says, Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Again, it says a very similar thing than, than, than he does in Thessalonians here. That Christ died and risen, ascends to heaven, 
and is there at the right hand of God. By the way, do you know Christ is there even now, making intercession for us even now? So who are we talking about? Who is Paul writing about? Who are the Thessalonians waiting for? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus simply a really good teacher? Was he just an earthly prophet or earthly king? No, right? We know and believe he was much more than that. We know and believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God. As a matter of fact, if you look in 1 Thessalonians, you're going to see more about our God. You're going to see the Father mentioned. You're going to see the Son mentioned. And then on two occasions, you'll see the Holy Spirit mentioned. You see, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us the triune God, three in one. And this is the foundation of what we need to see this morning, is that we are here to worship, to hear from the word of the living and true God, the one and only living and true God, the God who is eternal, who was never created but always existed, the God who made Adam and Eve, the God who rescued Noah in the boat as he judged the earth, the God who called, Mo, uh, called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through them formed a people, the God who uh, used Moses to deliver his people out of Israel, the God who led Israel through the wilderness and eventually to the promised land, the God who led the judges and the kings like David, the God who was with the prophets, the God who sent his son in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the God who we see, by the way, at the baptism of Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the God who sent his son to the cross for our sins. And as verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians says, the God who raised him from the dead. Now we know who God is, right? This is who God is, and we know him according to Scripture, and we know who the Son of God is, don't we? We have sung about and we talk about Christ. And you might say, why, why would you even mention that this morning? We know this. Well, did you know there are billions of people in this world who do not see Jesus the way we see him? There are people who live around here who don't see Jesus the way we see him. There just are. I talked to someone last week who said, all religions worship the same God. I talked to this person face to face. All religions worship the same God. They all pretty much lead back. All religious writings, this person said, Bible, Quran, Book of Mormon, they all lead back to the same truth. And I said, no, they do not. And here's my dividing line on that, right? Of course, we would say the Bible is sufficient and is the supreme standard. But here's my other dividing line. Who do you say Jesus is, right? And these other people say, he was a good man, good teacher, good prophet. Who do we say he is? The Son of God, very God, raised from the dead. You see, we believe Jesus was not a normal baby. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? We believe he's not just a creature, like as Jehovah's Witnesses say. He's not created like they say. We believe he was and is very God, eternal Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when it, when it says here, they're waiting for the Son from heaven, this is the Son we're talking about, Christ. Two things about him, you'll see there on your notes, that we need to make sure we understand. First is the humanity of Christ. That he was 100% man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And why did he have to become man? So that he could be tempted like we're tempted? So that he could 
keep the law, as we heard about earlier this morning, that he could keep that law perfectly. And he had to become man that he might sympathize with us and suffer and die for us. He had to be man. He had to become man that he might suffer and die for us. Well, he's also God. Notice, secondly, the deity of Christ. Why did Christ have to be God? Well, to satisfy God's wrath and then secure for us eternal life. So he had to be man, and he had to be God, and he is those very things. 100% man, 100% God. So he is Jesus. This is the Jesus we serve. Not someone's imagination of what Jesus is like, not what some other religions might say, but the Jesus the Bible proclaims. This is who we serve. We have a Savior, a Deliverer, according to verse 10. He delivers us, who is worth our living, He is worth our waiting, and even worth our dying, if it were to come to that. So who are they waiting for? Who are we waiting for? Christ. Big question number two is what? We've seen the who. Let's look at the what. The first part of the what is what are they doing? Look at verse 10. Mark this word. It says, and they were waiting. Wait for his son. So what does it mean to serve God, verse 9, and wait for him at the same time, verse 10? To me, verse 9 and verse 10 could seem like they're saying two different things. Let me give you an example. Like the other night, Jesse and I went out for a little quick date night. And I finished getting ready. And you think she was ready yet? Not finished getting ready. I'll tread lightly here. Not finished ready. So I'm like, you know, I could, you know, while I have some free time here waiting on her, I could, you know, put some dishes in the dishwasher. Could pick up the living room where the girl's been playing. Nah, I'm going to go sit in the car and wait. And so I went outside, cranked the car, put some music on, looked at my phone, right? So I was doing no good. I was just hanging out waiting. And it took a few minutes, and she finally came out there. That's not the kind of waiting verse 10 is talking about. It's not a twiddling our thumbs, waiting on Jesus to come back, right? It's not hanging out, bored. As a matter of fact, do you remember in Acts when Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples are watching? Remember this verse? The disciples are watching, Jesus ascends to heaven, and they're like, wow, that was amazing. And they're, they're watching, and they're sad, right, because Christ is going away. He died, came back, and now he's leaving again. They're like, what's going on? Do you remember what the angel told them? Remember that verse? Stop gazing up here. For the Christ who's leaving will come again in like manner. And with that is implying to them, y'all need to go do what he told you to do. Right? Go do what he told you to do, and he'll return when it's his time. And that's what we need to hear this morning. That this waiting that the Thessalonians were doing, and the waiting that we do for Christ to return, is not a waiting that is, again, twiddling thumbs, hanging out, sleeping on the job. This is a, an active waiting, where we are serving, verse 9, while we are waiting. By the way, as Christians, we are the scripture says we are slaves to God. We are servants of God. So we're to be working for him. Now let me give you a couple of texts here. Luke 19. I think I have this for you. Look at what Jesus said as he told this parable. It says, 
they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minus, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Right? And the, the point here is, you don't just hoard, but you, you engage. You, you work until he comes. Look at Luke 12, 40 and 43. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Now watch verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. According to verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Christians are to turn from idols, turn to God, and serve Him while we are waiting for Him to return. That's, that's the what here. And the, the, the next thing I'm going to talk about in this sermon is going to be what you think about when you leave here today. But if that's, the next part is all we think about, then, I, then we've missed this part. And I don't want us to miss this part, that we are called by God to be actively loving Him, loving others, making disciples, worshiping Him in the church as we are waiting for Him to return. Don't miss the what of the waiting. The second part of the what. What are they waiting for? In verse 10, when it says, when Paul writes that they are waiting for His Son from heaven, do you believe that is referring to the second coming of Christ? Hope you do this. This is yes, right? And we, we sang about it this morning in every song. We read it in our, our texts. As the one song said this morning, for his returning, we watch and we pray. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians mentions the second coming of Christ. And so when we get to those verses, I'm going to give you a little bit more about the second coming. As a matter of fact, when we get to 2 Thessalonians, it's going to be the same thing. And so today's message certainly won't give you everything, neither will all the messages, but I'm going to give you some parts of the second coming um, as we go through these things. Um, we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit this morning, had, had a great discussion um, there are more things about end times, which is called eschatology, the study of end times. There are more things that we don't know than we do know. All right? And great Christian believers have discussed and debated and disagreed on these things. And I believe will do so until the Lord returns. This week I was like, I was looking at some research on the second coming, and I was like, you know, I bet, I bet J.C. Ryle believes just like me on this. I'm sure he does. <laughs> so I Googled it. He does not. I was like, oh, that hurts. And not only Ryle, but some of the other folks who are my greatest heroes of the faith, um, I don't necessarily see eye to eye with them on this, some of these second coming end times things. 
I just want you to see that, that I'm going to try to be faithful to go through some scripture on this, but just understanding that it's heavily disputed and debated, right? Number one, I'm going to give you a few things we know. Here's some things that I think we can say with all certainty from the Bible. Here are some things we know for sure. Number one, Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? We see it in Scripture. Actually, I want to give you a couple here. It's all over Scripture. I mentioned Acts 1.11, where the angel said, Why are you gazing? The, the Jesus who was taken into heaven will come in the same way. Again, all through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. You see it mentioned here in Mark 13. We know Jesus is coming back. Now, some people believe he's already came. Was it a year ago, y'all? We talked about 1987. That was an inside joke for some of y'all. But, and y'all have heard these stories, right, of people who actually predicted Jesus would come back. One guy, was it in the 80s? Not, it was in the 80s, maybe. He's like, Jesus is coming back October 12th, 1982. And then it didn't happen. Then he was like, you know what? It's going to be later on in, in November. <laughs> he changed it. Okay. So Jesus is coming back. We believe that. Some people believe he already came back. We don't believe that, right? Most of us don't. All of us don't. That's one thing we know. Number two, same thing we know. I'll go through these quickly. We know his return will be unexpected. Luke 12, 40. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. It will be unexpected, even though some people try to predict the date. Insane. Number three, his return will be visible. Again, Acts 1 talks about that. He will come in the same way that he left. Revelation 1, 7 says he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. It will be a visible return. Number four, his return will be personal. Paul Jr. read us John 14 today. It will be personal. He says that where I am, there you may be also. Personal. Number five, his return will be glorious. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Number six, this is really an oversimplification, but his return will result in judgment and eternal condemnation for unbelievers. Believers will enter an eternal glory, new heaven and new earth. And that's a lot to unpack there. But we believe what I'm saying here is that there's finality to his coming. Number seven, there are several signs that the scripture says will precede Christ's return. So those are a few things we know. And I would argue after that, I don't know how much we really know. <laughs> but let's try it. Here's some things we do not know. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. The Bible says very clearly, no one knows the day or the hour. Right? That verse, Mark 13. So, and by the way, there's no reason to try to guess it, right? That's not our job. It's not our calling. We're to serve and wait and look, but not try to guess. We don't know when he's coming back. Number two, we do not know the exact details about the signs that will precede the second coming of Christ. We just don't, and, and we don't really have time, especially in a sermon, to dive into these, although that'll be some good discussion later. And again, these signs have been written about, and debated, and talked about, and in my opinion, fantasized and dramatized in, in, in some degree. But I'm going to give you six signs. And just to let you know up front, some people believe these signs have already happened. 
Some people believe they have not happened. Some people believe some of the signs have happened and some have not happened. Some believe the signs have partially happened but not fully happened. You see what I'm saying? People are all over the spectrum on this, right? Even in this room, by the way, even in this room, some of us are on different spectrums on this, this thought. And that's okay. Look at the signs. And remember, this is under the category of things we really don't know all the details about. All right? First, preaching of the gospel to all nations. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I find it hard, I find it hard to believe that this has already happened because there are billions of people in the world who don't know Christ or have never heard the name of Christ, never heard the gospel, don't have a Bible, don't have a church. But there are some people who use Scripture and make arguments that when, when he said the whole world, he just meant you know, parts of the world. So I want you to see that. By the way, this should only encourage us to share the gospel, spread the gospel through the whole world. Whatever view of it you have, we should take the gospel to the nations because that's what Jesus called us to do. The second one is the great tribulation. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation. So there are so many thoughts on what is the great tribulation. Is the great tribulation what happened in 70 A.D. when Nero destroyed Jerusalem? Is the great tribulation what happened in some other times in the past 2,000 years, some people even this morning might be thinking something happening in Israel today, this weekend, is a part of a great tribulation. I've already seen that on social media. So what is it? What is the great tribulation? Has it happened? Is it happening now? Will it happen in the future? We'll discuss that probably on Wednesday night. Number three, false prophets working signs and wonders. Mark 13 for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Jesus talks here about these false Christs, Christs, false prophets, doing miraculous works to confuse or lead astray God's people. Number four, this one is the signs in the heavens. Look at the verse. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Number five. The coming of the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. This, the, the, the Antichrist passage, by the way, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, so when we get there, We'll do a more deep dive on this topic. Some people believe the Antichrist is just a, a spirit that's going about in the world, a spirit, of, and John talks about that in 1 John, the spirit of the Antichrist, and, and, and basically little Antichrists. Other people believe it's someone who's already existed. Again, Nero in 70 AD was called the Antichrist. Um, all our heroes of the faith from the Reformation thought it was the Pope or the papacy. They thought that guy fits the bill as the Antichrist. People thought Hitler was the Antichrist. People thought Stalin was the Antichrist. People thought, uh, was it Gorbachev or in Russia was the Antichrist? 
People have said Obama or Trump's Antichrist. People have said all kinds of people are the Antichrist. We'll talk more about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Number six, the salvation of Israel. This comes from Romans chapter 11. It says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, Israel, whom Christ came from, rejected him for the most part. So the gospel then was shared with the Gentiles. And it's saying here, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, will their full inclusion mean? Most, or many people believe here that this means there will be a time where Israel, many people from Israel, will turn to Christ as their Savior. By the way, this topic is one of those topics that really how you view Israel really is a lens through which you see the entire Scripture. Some of us have had conversations about this, but how you view them is, do you believe one day Christ is going to return, or before Christ returns, the, the temple's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, they're going to reestablish uh, animal sacrifices there, and Christ will come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Some people believe that. Some people believe, according to Romans 9 that, and 9 through 11, that, that we are now a part of the new Israel, been engrafted into them. And again, th this is one of those things that truly will affect how you see the word is how you view Israel and the salvation of Israel. And that's something we'll definitely have to get into uh, down the road. By the way, regardless of how we see view Israel, I don't know if y'all been watching the news. It's, a, it's terrible what's going on over there right now. Don't even go down the rabbit hole to watch the videos. It's, uh, it's terrible. But we'll certainly need to pray for those people. So, I went through this quickly, and I hope to pique your interest on some of these things. I hope you will, if, you, if you're interested, you'll study these things, see what the Bible says, have some discussions. I'm sure Wednesday night we're going to have some good discussions about this. Um, I would encourage you, always approach eschatology, the study of end times, with patience and wisdom and grace toward others, knowing that probably amongst Orthodox believers, this is the most debated and unsure doctrine, I would say. And I would also add that what I was taught growing up, I don't believe is true. And I believe that's actually how a lot of things are in my life, but I don't believe that's true. Nonetheless, as we dive into this, every chapter, uh, and, and maybe say a little bit more about it, um, May we always be asking, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Let's go to big question number three. Why? If we agree that Jesus is coming back, then why is he coming back? Verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians. To wait for his Son from heaven, heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us, from the wrath to come. Flip to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 through 10.
which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we say this? The first time Jesus came, it was as a humble baby in a manger. The second time he comes, it is a it is as a warrior, right? I mean, verse 8, flaming fire taking vengeance on them that do not know God. Verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So back in chapter 1, verse 10, when it says, He delivers us from the wrath to come, chapter 2, verse 1, is a, is a taste of that wrath. And it tells us there is affliction for the unbeliever, rest and relief for the believer. Destruction for the unbeliever, glory for the believer. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do we understand, church, that in our sin, we deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on us in eternity, which we call hell, right? Eternal condemnation, eternal destruction. We deserve, and I want you to hear this, it's not Satan's wrath, by the way, this is God's holy, just wrath that he must pour out on sin. Catch this, if you don't catch this, I'm not sure you really catch the gospel. God is holy, and he must punish sin, and we are sinners who must be punished, or our sin must be paid for. And so when Christ hung on the cross and said, it is finished, what was he doing? Taking the wrath of God that we deserve. So when Jesus returns, though he has saved us by taking God's wrath, verse 10 says, he will deliver us from God's wrath. And so my question as I read that this week is, wait, didn't he already... Save us on the cross? Didn't he already accomplish that? Well, look at Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. I think I have those for you. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, we've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been, again, declared righteous because of Christ, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath. Of God. So He saved us, and our salvation is complete, but we also see this picture of the second coming as He pours out destruction and condemnation on the lost. We will avoid that wrath. We are secure in Christ. And so He will deliver us from the wrath to come. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, my favorite verses in these entire letters. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath. Eternal wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, which is live or die, we should live together with him. He has not destined us for God's wrath because he took God's wrath. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, second coming, not to deal with our sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, we, we said this actually on Wednesday night, I think, to some degree. Escaping God's wrath and escaping God's condemnation is a glorious thing, right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Escaping that is a glorious thing, but there's something even better. And us escaping hell or escaping God's wrath is not for us the ultimate goal. That's a part of it, but it's not the ultimate goal. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we will certainly cover this when we get there. It'll be a very interesting discussion. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 15, it says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now watch this last phrase. And so shall we be ever with the Lord. Our goal is that we will be forever with the Lord. And reading recently in Philippians, Paul said, it's better, that's better. <laughs> like, to, to, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Know that verse? To live is Christ, to die is gain. And Paul says, though we fear death and we don't want to leave this place because we have family and friends and things going on, Paul says, you know what? It's actually better for the believer to be with Christ. So our goal, our prize, is to be with God. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, just like the Thessalonians were doing, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Last verse, 2 Timothy 4, 8. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Those who long for, wait for, desire Christ to return will experience eternal safety and glory in His presence. So church... Like the Thessalonians, we are to be serving, verse 9, and while we're serving, we're also waiting for His return. And we long for it, 
but we stay about the mission while we wait for it. I want you to see this, my last point here. I think it's the next one. Though the who, which is Christ, and the why, to deliver us from God's wrath that we may be with him forever, is for us more important than the when and the how. The who and the why is more important than the when and the how. So may we look to Christ, may we serve Christ, may we wait for Christ, but may we be full of hope that no matter how bad this life may be at times, there is something better to come. There is something better to come. Let's pray.